In Savannah, people already face difficulty renting, much less buying, property. Having a felony on your background check makes it damn near impossible. Today, we'll dive into how difficult it is to find housing in Savannah with a felony on your record. Hello and welcome to the Commute Podcast. I'm Drew Favka of the Savannah Morning News, where I cover public safety. I'm filling in this week for host Adam Van Brimmer to discuss one of my latest stories. But first, a word from our sponsor, National Office Systems. If you're a regular listener to The Commute, you know about Scott Center and his team over at Nat Office Systems and how they are Savannah's experts in office design and outfitting. They work with top quality suppliers such as Dirt Modular Interiors and Herman Miller Furniture to create comfortable and productive workspaces. Learn more by visiting www netofficesys.com. Now, let's get to the story. Connie Nunnally knows the odds are stacked against her. Finding housing is difficult for anyone right now, but for her, it feels nearly impossible. She has a felony on her record, and when she applied to various public and private apartments in Savannah, they all rejected her. I'm a mm-hmm. felon, and some people would outright say, you know, we don't take people with felony backgrounds. Not only is just one of thousands of people each year who leave prison and return to society, they have to start from the ground up, building employment, credit, and stable housing, all key factors to re-entry and all with its own host of barriers. But without a place to live, everything hangs in the balance. According to data from the Prison Policy Initiative, formerly incarcerated people are almost 10 times more likely to experience homelessness. That increases their chances of reoffending. In Georgia, two out of three former felons will return to prison within three years. The statistics are startling, and it's cause for local governments like Savannah to find solutions, solutions that will stop or at least curb discrimination against the formerly incarcerated. We we want fair housing. Uh, We want fair opportunities, and we want um, individualized um, evaluation of each application of someone who is seeking housing. That's Savannah Mayor Van Johnson. Last year, he established a task force called Advocates for Restorative Communities in Savannah, or ARCS. ARCS aims to create a fair housing policy that will bar housing providers from discriminating based on criminal history. But the question is... The question is is that can we legally do that under HUD rules under state law? Without overarching legislation, local policy can fall flat, lose its teeth. Johnson knows he can't force the hands of private landlords or developers, and he walks a fine line between advocating for those who transition successfully and protecting the community from those who are still dangerous. But there are other possibilities. The city decides which private developers can build affordable housing. The mayor says he wants to create a provision that will ensure developers will at least consider formerly incarcerated people. They can decide whether they want to take the project or not. And other re-entry assistance exists, but they are few and far between. One of them is transition centers. The Georgia Department of Corrections operates 11 of these transition centers in the state. But we were not meant to go it alone. I think as a team or a village is how we were actually created um, to function socially. So community and corrections and returning citizens uh, need to work together to 
uh, fix this problem and to help returning citizens to have a smoother transition back into society. Julius Campbell is a former convicted felon. He was released into the Coastal Transitional Center in Savannah. The center helped him get back on his feet financially. And the numbers show it helps people like Campbell maintain a crime-free life. But that resource is no longer available. Last year, the Savannah Center closed due to budget cuts. It was a blow to the already thinning safety net. As one of the center's last graduates, Campbell still faced a mammoth problem, finding housing. He had $2,500 to his name, 100 times more than when he left state prison. He sent in his first $50 housing application. After a month, he was denied. Reason? Incarceration. Eventually, Campbell was able to find housing, and he wor- now works as a life navigator for the youth advocacy group, The Deep Center. But the path he took to get there was long and winding and full of closed doors. So can you imagine a returning citizen coming home, number one, just starting over? Number two, he has a job, probably a low-level entry job, and he's paying 50 to $125 per application, he or she, to find uh, housing. Well, that is why one of the fastest growing homeless populations today is returning citizens. Nunnally, our speaker from before, knows this. After being released from prison, she was eventually able to move in with her daughter. But people getting out of incarceration right now is, a, is you know, they're walking straight to a dead end. Nunnally and her daughter start a nonprofit called Building Bridges. One thing they do is help find housing for the formerly incarcerated. According to Nunnally's calculations, that group has a 5% chance of finding housing after leaving their program. But if it wasn't for my daughter, even though I own a construction company, I would have been homeless, you know, literally, because I couldn't get into the house, any house or apartment because I'm a felon. Welcome to the Commute Podcast. Connie Nunnally, CEO of Building Bridges. Uh, you took part in the article I wrote a few weeks ago about fair, the fair housing policy. Uh, can you first tell me and you know all the listeners who are listening in to the Commute podcast today what Building Bridges is, what the main mission is? Well, Building Bridges is a community nonprofit agency where we're in the community in the urban area where it is most of the hardship. Where, why are we there is if you're going to solve a problem, we need to go to the heart of the problem. Building Bridges provides um, different programs like work program, housing program, um, trade, which is education, entrepreneur program. Um, we also have a STEM program for the children, young adults. Um, we have cognitive behavior program to teach um, people in the neighborhood how to um, better our situation. And when I say our, in Savannah, we all are family. And I'm a big part of the family in the area that I'm in. Um, I've formerly been incarcerated myself. And while I was incarcerated, um, we have a wonderful sheriff, which is Sheriff Wilshire. Lieutenant Neville and I say a couple of more. Um, I went to them and I told them that while I was incarcerated, I would like to help. 
I know that sounds, but I would like to help and I would like to give my trade to other women who were there. Well, they allowed me to, while I was incarcerated, to train them how to script floors and do different various things, um, paint for the dog program. Um, it helped. A lot of girls got out, got jobs, wrote back to me um, while I was there. and They said they couldn't wait. Well, I started building bridges there. Um, where the, again, where the heart of the problem is. Um, realizing why I was there, communicating um, with most of the girls and knowing the things that um, as I endured in my life, that the missing part is not only um, understanding how the world is changing, but grasping um, that the world is changing and we're leaving some people behind. And it really, um, though we have a wealth gap, we also have a, how would I put emotional or a mental gap? It, 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 when I found out, we have, when I went in there, we have a lot of um, different variety of races, more, most black and white. Um, most Caucasian females are incarcerated and most African-American men. Um, so the wealth part of it doesn't play a part when it comes to incarceration. Um, it's more of a mental um, concept now. It used to be um, it was the poor who were on drugs. And, well, that's not the problem that we're facing these days in time. The problem now is uh, uh, mental. It's a mental um, deficiency that we're having in families of growth. We're not growing as families. Like um, I, I know, there's a lot of young ladies in there that uh, were come from wealthy families. They were. We have a pill epidemic, and a lot of those young girls. And um, I think it's meth meth epidemic. A lot of those young girls came from wealthy families. They twenty something years old. They didn't have any teeth or. I know I'm kind of like running with it, but I'm going to the point where where I'm trying to explain it's a mental thing. And what I mean mental, um, it's not to the point where damage or retardation, if I can say that, but it's more of a PTSD sort of type thing, Um, a lack of the, at one particular time going into the late 90s and the 20s, most of the mothers and fathers have been working out of the homes. And you were talking about upper middle class. So you have these young children that are just as well as you know, poor black children that are growing out in their neighborhoods on the streets, the native fags, fags, I'm sorry, of um, add things that's coming out trends. So that gap between poor and rich when it comes to our young youth close in. Now, and, and the poor is the fun way to go. And now you have lost a lot of our children in, in those situations. You know, a lot of working families, high middle class, poor, you're working, and your children are everywhere. So now you have these children that is now in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, that are not only teenagers, but they're young adults. And they lack the family values, cognitive behavior, you know, 
um, who you are, what is your value in this family, that a lot of that was lost. So going back, now we have a lot of young people who are somewhat educated, some are educated, some not, that are doing drugs, they're not party, they're not um, had the attention at home, they now have records, they're felons. So the gap is not only poor, but you have high middle class felons that can't get housing. You, you see what I'm saying? So it's not also just a poor um, um, problem. It's a problem being a felon, being labeled as a felon, and it's sticking to you and you're trying to get your life back together. You might have wealth. If you don't have a wealthy parent that can open the doors, they might own houses. They might can start out a new business for you. Um, the higher middle class got a better chance with their felonies, but they still have the same problem. You understand what I'm saying? So now you have a group of two different types of people, a group of people who are homeless. Like you were saying, I've seen in the news um, when you did your report, you had a young lady. She was a young mother. She's in college and she can't get housing. She's changed her life totally, you know, and she's a Caucasian female. She's doing a good job with her life and she can't find a place to stay. So it's not um, only adjusting us living where we're living, but adjusting the, the felony um, itself. You know, we should not only um, try to work, once we work out this problem, Drew, and I'm so proud of you being a young man, you're doing this, you know, facing this problem and attacking it right on, and not really attacking anybody, but attacking the problem. I think that is wonderful, and thanks um, for including me. But I think we should not only we attack the housing problem, but attack the problem of how we carry our felonies. It is now becoming more of the law itself. You know, we can't keep going on like this. Um, you can be in the car, Andrew, and say, you can, you say, okay, Ms. Nunnally, um, you bring, let me get a couple of people, and I'll even give them a ride there um, to the interview. You know, we can talk. And you got somebody in your car. You get stopped. They got some drugs. You didn't know. You were just doing an interview. Now you're a felon, Drew. Look at you. You, you. you would never do anything to harm anybody, anything, drugs. But now you're a felon. You see my point? Where we now, what we need to do is focus on the felony itself. And how could we, um, law-wise, arrange it? That once it's your past and you're doing better, it's your past. And it should not be a part of messing up the economy because that's what we do when we have people like the young lady you're talking about and some people that I help that change their life. They're, be, they're good for Savannah. They're good for um, a, a person, a place for housing, and they don't get a second chance, you know. So we need to address more the, of the felony in the article of how the felony, how we address people voting, voting rights. Um, could you imagine, um, Drew, if you had a felony? And how you wouldn't be able to reach, you're a wonderful young man, you wouldn't be able to reach as many people because they might not even, the new people would probably give you a job. You couldn't get housing, you know what I'm saying, by what you was doing, helping. You understand what I'm saying? So we need to address 
really most of all the 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 laws they have down for a felon because it's not going to get any better. You know, I know housing is drastic right now in Savannah. Um, what we talk about is like when I was incarcerated, um, I always owned my own company, my small business. I raised five of my children, went through nursing school. My son is in the Navy. You know, all of them have good jobs, never been arrested. Their mom is now a felon, a single black mom, you know. So now they're okay. Now, I have to go face them and say, okay, um, I, I don't want to talk about my charges and uh, the thing to address, but okay, I can say, okay, it, they understand that wasn't my, I had anything to do with it. Like I said, I was in the crossfire. But you have to be careful. The same thing, same to you do. You can't put everybody in your car. You can't put everybody in your house. You know, so where do we go from here? Now I have to face them and they say, okay, I got to ask my kids to, um, when I come out, find me a place to stay because we need the house that I own to make money. Okay. So how, help me find a place to, um, thing on the way transitioning out because I'm helping people in the inside and mom, no one wants to, even though you have the income, no one, they're not going to put you in a place. We can't find a place for you. We've, um, we they prefer for me no longer to be in those areas that even if I'm helping living there because that's you you talking about a mom who raised five children you know they look up to me they don't want me back in regardless of whether I'm helping or not in the area that might can get me in trouble while I'm helping so they're like mom you can't be there you know what I'm saying we need you just not just the people you're helping need you okay. So they're go, they're running every place because I'm not going to leave the responsibility of my children's name on some property that I'm going into. My daughter's like, Mom, I get the house. I so so so. Also, when I come out, I have to help my mom. You know what I'm saying? Because I am, though my children are there, I've always been a provider for my mom, and she's not going to take anything from my children, regardless of whether they're going to help or not. Me, it's different. That's our tradition. You know what I'm saying? I'm the child, her child. Well, make a long story short, the same thing. Okay, I'm going to stay to my mom's, help her out a little while. So I came there. You know, I told my parole officer, she like, suddenly you think we love what you're doing. Keep up the good work. Here I go. I'm here. And now I still can't find any place to stay. You know, I can't have my own place to stay while I'm helping everybody, you know, find a place to stay <laughs> and get their life together. You know? So, so for you, I know you talked a little bit about you yourself serving time uh, in jail. When you first were released from jail, how did you run into the problem of not being able to find housing in Savannah? Can you go through those details? Well, um, um, as I said earlier, my daughter, I was in, I started in the transitional center on coming out. My daughter started working looking for housing for me in application because I also was working in the transitional job and I had my small construction company still going here. Though the money was there, they wanted to have three times the rent. Um, we went to different apartments on the south side, um, some in Georgetown, completely empty. We are going through not quite a recession, but we're going through the COVID. You need people to come and pay the rent. They was not interested. Why were, they, why were they interested? 
they wasn't interested in housing me at all, regardless of whether I had the money or not, you know, because I'm a felon. You know, I'm like, well, and I have this nonprofit, I'm trying to do this. And a lot of people have compassion for compassion for me. I wish you well. I think you're doing a great job, but I'm sorry, we can't. You just got out, you're failing, we can't house you. And is this a conversation with a property manager? Property managers, um, real estate agents, uh, you know, varieties. You got HUD. Um, you, I, I was reading something you said they'll put you in after a felony. They'll tell you that automatically during the process of you going to jail. You never get a place to stay in any type of, or grants, um, certain grants. You, they're not, you're not going to get any help, Ms. Nunnally. So they, it kind of deters you from helping other people because you're like, where, where, where am I going to get the resources from, <laughs> um, to do these things? You know, I feel, like right now, um, we help a lot of people, but believe it or not, we're not funded. We're, you know, we get awards and we get um, coverage and everybody say we're doing a good job, but they just want us to kind of like do the job, you know, and kind of talk to them about what they should do. And I feel like because I'm a felon, you know, is it's happening. They say, Ms. Nunley, you're doing a great job and I know you're using all your money all your resources and this and this and that. And, um, it might be a little rough here and there. And we're coming to do all this. And who's saying this? Uh, officials. City officials. They know what I do. They come and stop by the office. They walk through. They do my paperwork. They bring me people who I got to help. And they know I don't have any money. You know what I'm saying? So Mr. Mayor Samore, um came in and he, he said, you've been doing this forever. You know, before I got incarcerated, that's how I got incarcerated helping people. And he funded everything. And who is he again? His name is Mayor Samore, Maha Samore. <laughs> he owns the Penny Saver on Waters Avenue. He, right now, we just paid four people. He just paid, literally paid four people light bills. Literally. We have to, when I leave here, I got them. Um, we've got a U-Haul. We are moving this lady out of her house, moving her into her house. We paid for You know, um. It's, he, he's an amazing guy. You know, they're always saying that, um, um, quote, foreigners come here, they open up stores, they do this and do that. But so do you. What do you expect? They come from out of town. They have to, they're, they're, they're sticking together. They're trying to make things work. If you come up with a solution, they will help. You know, but don't just think somebody's just going to give you all their money. Or they don't supposed to come in a certain neighborhood and provide for their family. You wouldn't do it. You've been doing it forever, you know. But if you come up with a plan, remember they're foreigners. If you come up with a plan in your own country, you know what I'm saying? Maybe they'll support you. But remember the areas they're in. They're getting robbed too. You know what I'm saying? They have to deal with the people stealing from the 24 hours a day. Um, different things like that. But he came right on in. He owned a couple of houses. He brought his houses in. He said, place them in aircon. You know what I'm saying? Um, he's looking to buy. We're buying houses right now, you know, to place people in. Literally, place where time we get them, we fix them, put them in there, you know. So if we work together, the city come together, and we really work together, you know that there are people going to come and they're going to want this beautiful 
city. It's warm in the wintertime, beautiful trees, wonderful property. They're coming, you know. And if we cannot afford, um, if, we, if they don't have a plan to keep it, to make it, to keep Savannah going, and why not invite people? Why so much talk about gentrification and where people coming in? Why won't we all just sit together at the table? Because we came here with some people before we got here. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Regardless, we know the slave trade. We know exactly what went on. So new things happen. Things change, right? We just have to prepare for the change. And that's what we do at Building Bridges. We're preparing. We're telling people in the neighborhood, okay, we wanna, we want you to train, get you a decent job, get a trade, a job that can pay you some $15 an hour or more. Um, open up your own business. We have entrepreneur class. You know, start off small. Let's help you with finding the branch that would provide for your business. It helps Savannah grow. Um, places where you're living, um, at, let's clean up these areas. We get up every day. We have three shifts. They clean up the area they're in. We're teaching them that to make sure that there there won't be another um, bad urban neighborhood again. That's what Bill and Bridges does. So you can't stop change, but we we don't want to stop the change. You know, from making building Savannah, making it more, bringing more people in, but. We want to take care of the people that are here. We want to expand. A study thinking about changes, Dylan Bridges is thinking about expansion and improving, and most of all, improving the people that are already here. Can you take me through exactly what kind of steps Building Bridges does when a formerly incarcerated person comes to you? How do you help provide housing? You were talking about those entrepreneurship classes. Can you take me through those steps uh, especially Elijah Homeschool, things like that, building the house. Um, well, I'm sorry. Well, what we do is we, when you, we, we take people who are incarcerated, we ask them to come and to our program, and we get all their credentials. We get their driving license, IDs, um, then we set them up to provide them with jobs. And while we're putting them on jobs, we provide education with it. During the process, we make sure they um, are up to date with their parole, probation, whatever the courts um, have them to do. You know, make sure they're up to date with it, get all their credentials together, get them a job put them in our temporary housing. We have residential housing. Um, make sure they're be they're able to afford we have a plan, a budget plan. And the reason why people are like, well if it's non profit, why do um, why do you build them up to pay for their rent while they're in your transitional home? Well, this is the beginning of teaching them how to pay their rent. You know? Um, keeping on them in that twelve hundred dollar budget and moving them into one of our houses with the same budget. While they're in their house, we teach them how to, to they have to take money while they're working out of their check and put it in their savings. At the end of the year, we teach them how to budget that money into a 401k plan and into buying them a house. Well, back to what we began. 
we get all their credentials. We set them up with a job. We make sure they're on parole probation. Um, make sure they're in all legal binds of what they need to do. Um, provide more education for a better job, as I say. Put them in our residential housing program, then put them in a house. Um, the process can take up to a year, but we're side by side with them, making sure they're not, um, um, I wouldn't say spray off, but there will be distractions. Because when you come out, you go back into the same area and same situation, the same thing is going to happen. So you have to give people better op- options, not only better options, but counseling. You know, I say everybody in this area is PTSD, you know, of some sort of the situation of slavery, of the violence that surround them, the less education, the least education, the, you know, pandemics, and not being able to afford or educate yourself in you know, what's going on. That's a lot of mental damage. You know what I'm saying? It's a lot of suffocation. Like, where do I go? What do I do? So it caused people to use drugs and um, react to their violence. I'm hurting. You're going to hurt, too. You know, so we open our eyes to building bridges, knowing fully this is what we have to deal with. You don't just say, OK, I'm going to give you a place to stay. You get in a personal place to stay who shoplift for a living, just got out of jail for shoplifting. They they're what you call it, um, kleptomaniacs. So you're not going to address the problem. You know, when you we're also looking for. We call out for donations all the time. You know, we need help because what most people need in these situations is counseling. Not the type of counseling you say, okay, I'm your counselor and you're, this is your program. You're going to be, you need to go over here and make sure you have, go look for six jobs and then you do this and do this and I get you some food stamps. That's what we really want to happen. That's not the kind of counseling we need. We don't get, me being incarcerated, not one counselor came to me and said, Ms. Nunley, what happened to your childhood? What made you get to this point? No one ever asked me that. But I got four counselors. I got four counselors and you only ask me how I'm doing today. You just say, okay, um, your ID going to be in the mail and um, just stay out of trouble while you're in here. And so I'm like, well, wait a minute. I don't know anything about jail. I'm not about it. I don't sell drugs. Please tell me, you know, what exactly what? No, that's not. Well, let me tell you, if you go smoke, don't make sure you don't. That's what they tell you. The stuff that people tell you so you won't get bashed in your head. Well, what about talking to me about how you feel about being separated from your kids? Um, Ms. Nunley, what really in your heart you want to do next? We don't have counselors. And here at Dillon Bridges, those are the counselors in the funding we need. We need real counselors. We have to get to the problem, make, them under, make people understand. So you think they do, but they really don't. Because when you're faced with a whole bunch of things, if you get to put something to eat today, you're not worrying about the nine to five job going to get the nine to five job when you don't know how you're going to eat tomorrow. So you have to have things set in place that, hey, um, dealing with your mental, dealing with um, your drug problem, you know, dealing with your housing. You have to know some people we, we have right now, Mr. Bogus, he works to the Social Security office. He's volunteering, coming and giving basic computer classes. Do you know how many people since the pandemic has to get on the computer to apply for Medicaid food stamps, do their Social Security, and don't even know how to cut on the computer? 
Did you, we online, right? Everybody has to do online. Who, who, who you know with a computer or know how to use a computer to go online? So now we, our main classes right now is computer classes because you got to get through the COVID. Because people come to us 24 hours a day. Miss Nellie, um, I got to get my food stamps um, thing because you apply for my food stamps. Um, Miss Nellie, they can't even read what's in front of them. You understand what I'm saying? So we, we have to attack the problems at hand before we go and just say, okay, we're going to put all these people who don't have a place to stay in a place to stay. You understand what I'm saying? We, that's what the, our, that's what Dylan Bridges is. It's a program that goes to the main source of the problem. If you don't eliminate that, then we're going to have this problem again the next three years. And that's our mission. Our mission is to go in these neighborhoods, the urban neighborhood, and provide what they need. You know, get a better communication with the new people who are coming in, with the people who's going out. You know what I'm saying? Learning, show them how to take care of their area, show them how to um, help the economy in their city, and let them know they are important in their city. So what are the next steps moving forward for building bridges? The next step is try to get um, more people, get out counselors, get everybody to come in like you, like you are. Um, let everybody know what's going on. Hopefully get some funding, you know, in, and expand. Get people who right now, Clearview is going through a 911 right now. Get these people. Um, Clearview, Clearview Apartments. Yeah, Clearview. They're going through. Um, over there right now, you have, um, they said, I don't want to name them the wrong names. Promise House is helping in Shamika Simmons. Um, she got Black Voters Matters. Um, they're over there um, trying to assess and just, um, Shamika called me yesterday. I didn't know the evictions were so quickly, but they're still trying to adjust people. They got U-Hauls. Um, um, a promise house is putting people in the houses. You know, I, what I want is all of us to work together. I shouldn't know the day of, you know, that this is happening because I have a whole hundred I'm people right now that God is blessing me, that I'm placing in. We're settling down some, you know what I'm saying? Getting them in the houses for Christmas. Um, Miss Garrett, Miss Tawana Garrett, she's a secret weapon. She has come in and helped us tremendously. By helping us fund, helping young people who are really in the heart of the violence that's going on from the ages of 18 and 24. She's literally helping us house them, paying for them to be housed. You understand what I'm saying? Literally. Could you imagine that? 18 to 24. No one has anything for them. But Mr. Wana, and I keep repeating her name. I cried the other night. Literally, it's, she's everywhere. And she stopped and said, Mr. we're going to do this. And she got them in there. She's doing it at this, at this moment. So we're real busy right now. We need people like that, all of us together, these nonprofits, um, the district attorney, I've talked to her several times. She's helped uh, with a couple of gang incidents that in, that um, involved came to me because they wanted my help. Well, if um, Dietrich Leggett, he's my city councilman. I can't do – I have – He's opened so many doors. He's there. He's on my, I asked him to come on my board because his leadership and his consulting us and, you know, being there outside, rain shine, someone got shot. He's at the front door at 12 o'clock at night. You know, that's what we need. 
you know, the city officials, we, we, we don't need them separated. We need them all together. We need them to do that footstep that Mr. Leggett is doing right now. You know, that's what we nonprofits really, really need. Well, great. Thank you so much, Connie, for coming uh, to speak with me today. I really appreciate uh, everything you shared with me. Thanks so much. You're wonderful. Keep up. That's all for the Tuesday Commute Podcast. Thanks again to our presenting sponsor, National Office Systems. Adam will be back on Thursday. Have a great day. Mm-hmm.